Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. I used to live in Japan. I enjoyed it immensely. I spent about two and a half years there, and toward the end of my time in that country, I visited probably one of Japan's most controversial spots, the Yasukuni Shrine. Yasukuni Shrine, uh, you've probably heard of it. It's dedicated to all members of the Japanese armed forces who are said to have died for the emperor. That includes known war criminals from World War II. The shrine has, let's say, contributed to some of the difficulties with Japan's relationship with Korea and China. I was curious. I wanted to see what all the fuss was about. I wanted to see the thing that got on the news all the time and was held up as the single most offensive and controversial thing in that country. Now, there's a museum in the Yasukuni Shrine that I also visited, and it's dedicated to Japanese military history. And I do have to admit that I enjoyed myself there. There's an immense collection of swords, armor, and other military artifacts that are compelling to see, even if you completely disagree with the politics of the place, which I do. One element of the museum, though, stuck with me. It was part of a large exhibit about Japan in World War II, and there was a small poster on the wall showing a map of Manchuria with a blurb in English as well as Japanese about how during the 1930s and 1940s, five ethnic groups... Han, Mongol, Manchu, Japanese, and Korean. They came together in Manchuria, under Japanese guidance, to form a new state, Manchukuo, independent of China. Uh, when I saw this exhibit, I thought it was absurd. I thought that it was utterly ridiculous that anyone, even a notoriously historically illiterate Japanese right wing, could be making any kind of apologetics for Manchukuo in the 2000s. The idea that Manchukuo was a quote-unquote real country is ridiculous. I knew the story behind what had happened in northern Manchuria before and during World War II, and in the Yasukuni Shrines Museum, I almost started laughing when I saw that exhibit that was so obviously and absurdly, factually incorrect, ahistorical propaganda. So here's the backstory of why I was so surprised and so amused at that Japanese museum. It's the story of Japan, a rising power, inventing a fake country in northern China, and then trying to convince the world that their creation, their puppet, was in fact an independent nation. Of all the countries to resist Western encroachment and imperialism, Japan probably did it the best. And Japan did it by saying, if you can't beat them, join them. After Commodore Perry forcibly opened Japan to foreign trade with his black ships, the country was racked by unrest, and a great deal of people there realized that being a feudal, isolationist nation, that wasn't what was going to save them from foreign domination. The Meiji Restoration is one of the most incredible feats of modernization in the history of the world, and it probably deserves its own episode. The short version is that Japan spent the entire back end of the 1800s rapidly industrializing, reforming their government and military, and in 1905, they had a coming out party. That coming out party was the Russo-Japanese War with Japan and Russia fighting over territory around Korea and Manchuria. Japan, this up-and-coming East Asian nation that had been very isolated within living memory, was suddenly able to defeat one of the great European powers. The Treaty of Portsmouth, which ended the war, gave Japan the Russian lease on the Kwangtung Peninsula and the South Manchurian Railway Company. Five years later, in 1910, Japan, they would further cement their control over the region, by annexing Korea. This kind of expansion 
was in keeping with Japan's program of becoming a modern power, like Britain, like France, and like the United States. Just like those countries, they had industry, and like those countries, they had colonies. Japan successfully avoided Western domination by becoming the kind of international power that does dominating of its own, and it would continue. The next step was Manchuria, and that would involve a fair amount of train explosions. Okay, just two train explosions. But still, during the late 1920s and early 1930s, China was in chaos. The emperor had fallen, the nationalists and the communists waged a civil war that would consume that country, and Japan, having a lease on a Manchurian peninsula and a Manchurian railway company, took advantage of China's disunion to expand their influence. The first real attempts at Japanese influence in Manchuria uh, was to find a local authority figure to be their puppet, their kind of colonial administrator, if you will. Uh, Zhang Zhuolin, I am probably pronouncing his name wrong, was a Manchurian warlord who very much wanted to set up an independent state ruled by him in northern China. He actually invaded Beijing at one point. He occupied Beijing for a while, but it didn't go well. Chiang Kai-shek pushed him back, and Zhang ultimately proved to be ineffective both as a military leader and as a head of government. He was also not as cooperative as the Japanese would have liked, so Japanese military personnel, they planted a bomb in a viaduct, uh, destroyed his train, and killed him. Kind of an excessive way to assassinate somebody, destroying their whole train. You just needed to shoot him, guys. Now, Zhang Zhuolin's son, again, probably pronouncing his name wrong, and I'm going to pronounce his son's name wrong, was Zhang Zhuiliang, uh, who succeeded him. And the Japanese, they thought that the younger Zhang, uh, he would be a bit more pliable. The younger Zhang, he was something of a womanizer. Uh, he smoked opium. He was kind of a libertine. This guy is going to make a pretty good meat puppet. However, Zhang Zhuiliang surprised everyone. After his father was assassinated... He actually kicked his opium habit, got himself together, did a sort of Prince Hal to King Henry thing, and allied with Chiang Kai-shek. He joined his warlord forces with the nationalists. So Japan couldn't really use this local warlord and local authorities as their proxy powers in Manchuria anymore. If they wanted northern China, they would have to take it themselves. Japan needed a pretext, an excuse to invade Manchuria. This pretext would also involve train bombs. There must have been a few guys in the Kwangtung army, that would be the Japanese army in Manchuria, who just really liked going all Gomez Adams on trains. Remember, Japan, they have the rights to the South Manchuria Railway Company, they won it from Russia, and in 1931, Japanese military personnel planted a small bomb on that railway. It wasn't big enough to do any serious damage, but it did go off, and Japan subsequently blamed Chinese militarists for the explosion. And using that false flag operation as a pretext, they invaded Manchuria, defeating Zhang Zhuiliang's forces over a period of five months. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Instead of just annexing Manchuria, or having a colony, Japan made the kind of unusual decision to dress up their new possession like it was an independent country called Manchukuo. That way, Japan could not be accused of simply taking such a huge tract of land for itself. Instead, they could say, no, no, look, we simply midwifed a new totally independent country into existence. We're just there as advisors and friendly neighbors, international community. 
Nothing to see here? Nope. Now, to complete this charade of Manchukuo being a real country that everyone should totally believe in, the Japanese, they made it a flag. They composed a national anthem. And they got a hold of the last Chinese emperor to act as Manchukuo's head of state. Now, this guy, the last emperor of China, he apparently had a whole series of names and titles, as royalty always do, but the name he's best known by, and what he called himself, is Puyi. So, that's what I'm going to call him. Puyi, he had a weird, weird life. He became emperor of China when he was just a boy, far too young to even know what emperor actually was, and he was deposed a short time later in 1912, during China's Xinhai Revolution. He was put on the throne again in 1917, when a warlord seized powers and needed the emperor to legitimize his rule, and then he was deposed again. And later on, the Japanese offered him the throne of Manchukuo. He said yes, he would love to be an emperor for the third time in his life. More on that guy later. Despite Manchukuo having all the trappings of a real country, like a flag, a national anthem, an emperor in a fancy hat, etc., the international community wasn't really buying it. The League of Nations ended up sending a fact-finding mission to Manchuria to investigate the railway bombing that started the whole business of Japanese invasion, and the League ultimately decided that Manchukuo could not exist without the presence of the Japanese army. It was, they said, a puppet kingdom. At the League of Nations, the Japanese delegation, they were completely enraged by this, and upon hearing it, stood up, walked out, and Japan quit the League right then and there. Despite their findings, it was apparent that the League couldn't really do anything about Japan setting up a fake country in Manchuria, and the whole mess went a long way to revealing how weak an institution the League really was. Still, the rest of the world didn't buy that Manchukuo was a real country. Japan's puppet nation was only ever recognized by a handful of other countries, like El Salvador, the Dominican Republic, Soviet Union, Italy, Spain, Germany, Hungary, Slovakia, France, which, remember, is under German control, Romania, Bulgaria, Finland, Denmark, Croatia, Thailand, and the Philippines. They all recognized Manchukuo, but that was it. Apparently, there's a popular myth floating around that the Vatican extended diplomatic relations with Manchukuo. They didn't. The Holy See sent an ecclesiastical mission to Japan's puppet government, but not a diplomatic one. So the Vatican was able to say, okay, we have somebody in Manchukuo keeping an eye on things, but we can do it without actually recognizing Manchukuo. And you might have noticed that a few of those countries, like Italy and Germany, were allied with Japan, and another, the Philippines, they were also under the Japanese heel. Manchukuo really wasn't recognized where it mattered. The US, the UK, and other major powers, they weren't really buying Japan's charade. Despite the lack of international recognition, though, Japan poured all kinds of resources into northern China. Manchuria is a huge source of natural wealth, of agricultural land, of coal, of minerals, and Japan did everything it could to exploit that. For instance, Manchukuo's currency was made the equivalent of the yen, ensuring easy one-to-one trade between the two areas. By the end of World War II in 1945, Japanese investment in Manchukuo was greater than investment in Korea, Taiwan, and the rest of China combined at almost 6 billion yen. That's, by the way, 6 billion yen in 1941 currency. So it would be way more today. 
Between 1933 and 1942, industrial production in Manchukuo, or Manchuria, tripled, and Japan also invested considerably in public health and education. This was not for altruistic reasons, though. Japan was trying to make, in the long term, a country that was tied to it and of it. This included things like the settlement of ethnic Japanese in Manchurian territory. Now, this plan wasn't carried out, but Japan had planned to ship over one million Japanese households to Manchukuo over the next 20 years. Also, there were plans to link Puyi, the last Chinese emperor, to the Japanese royal family. Puyi participated in a religious ritual that made him, officially, Hirohito's younger adopted half-brother, and there were plans to eventually marry him to one of the Japanese emperor's relatives, which, I guess, would have been a strong demonstration of brotherhood and friendship and stuff, albeit with the whole younger half-brother thing kinda sorta incesty. But monarchs are weird. All this development investment, though, it came at a gigantic cost. Manchukuo was not a self-governing state. Puyi was ostensibly the head of state, and there was a legislature, but the emperor was mostly just a figurehead, and the legislature, that was a rubber stamp. All of the real decision-making was done by Japanese military bureaucrats who were, supposedly, just there in a support and advisory capacity. So there was no free government and transparency. That meant all kinds of forced seizure of farmland, only one official political party, and the general feel that your country, it was not your own. To try and drum up popular support, the Japanese instituted a program of propaganda that emphasized that Manchukuo was a country with many peoples living in harmony together, under Japanese guidance, of course, and that national allegiance trumped other concerns and identifications. Now, permit me to do a little bit of political science waxing poetic here. The political ideology of Manchukuo and its one official political party, the Concordia Association, they somewhat resembled European fascism. Fascism puts itself in opposition to communism and to capitalism in that it attempts to ignore economic identifications that those other two modes of thought use to define themselves. Uh, in communism, one is supposed to identify as a worker first, and national concerns are second, if at all. Communism's class identifications are, theoretically, supposed to transcend national or religious or even linguistic identification. In a capitalist system, economic self-interest and ambitions are supposed to, theoretically, lead to competitive markets that pay no heed to national origin, religion, etc., Again, this is an idealized version of both systems. In fascism, though, your class identification or your economic ambitions, uh, the hallmarks of communism and capitalism, those are subsumed by national identification. For example, a German fascist, they would identify first and foremost as a member of their nation and their people, and any economic activity or identification that they had would serve that nationalistic essentialist view of themselves. I hope that makes sense. In Manchukuo, the Japanese went out of their way to not only hold up the Chinese emperor as a head of state, but they also tried to get religious leaders, such as Buddhist monks and Confucian scholars, on their side. This was all an attempt to create, artificially, a Manchukuo national identity that would trump other legitimate identifications with the citizenry. In Manchukuo, 
this philosophy of nationalism was known as the kingly way. And if this all sounds nebulous and ill-defined, that's because it was. In 1933, Nato Konan, a Japanese historian, said, quote, The kingly way slogan is being repeated and celebrated as the nation-building ideal for Manchukuo. But could someone please explain exactly what that means? Unquote. Unfortunately for Mr. Nato's curiosity, Manchukuo would cease to exist far before that kingly way thing could ever play itself out. But I'm digressing a little. I was talking about why Manchukuo was not actually the ideal country for the people who lived there. And there are two particularly brutal examples that show how Manchukuo was, ultimately, subject to the whims of an occupying army. Japan very much wanted to use northern Manchuria as a staging ground for further military adventures in China. That meant that Manchukuo saw quite a lot of industrialization, which I already mentioned. And that industrialization, it wasn't fun for the people who had to break their backs to make it happen. At the Benshihu Colliery, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, uh, which was a coal and iron mine, conditions were atrocious. Workers were underfed, underclothed, they worked long hours, and in that mining camp, cholera and typhoid found ample purchase. That was bad enough. But, Benshihu, it was the home to one of the worst industrial disasters in the history of the world. In 1942, a dust explosion, which is actually a common incident for coal mines, ripped through the facility, and a mine shaft had to be sealed to prevent the spread of flames. Japanese officials didn't bother with evacuation before the shaft was sealed. When the explosion was first reported, the official death toll was only 34. We don't have accurate numbers, but now it's believed that in the Benshihu explosion, around 1,500 mine workers died that day at that Japanese coal and iron mining facility. But even more frightening and appalling than the conditions and disregard for human life at Benshihu was Unit 731, and that name really does not describe what happened at a research station that the Japanese set up in Manchuria. Unit 731 was home to some of the most appalling violations of human rights the 20th century has ever seen. The Japanese army engaged in experimentation on human subjects that included exposure to disease, biological weapons, chemical weapons, and vivisection. The only thing really comparable to Unit 731's activities were the Nazi medical experiments going on on the opposite side of the planet at the time. Several sources that I looked at in preparation for this episode mentioned that the general belief now is that after the war, the U.S. granted the Japanese scientists and officials who carried out these experiments immunity from war crimes prosecution in exchange for their data. The American military, it's generally believed, was just as interested in the effects of chemical and biological agents as the Japanese military was. Obviously, there is no Manchukuo anymore. In May of 1945, Allied forces defeated Japan's, and therefore Manchukuo's, ally, Nazi Germany. Soon, the attention of the U.S. and the Soviet Union would be wholly focused on Japan and its greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere. American nuclear bombs fell on Japan in August, and Soviet ground forces soon made their way to Manchuria. Hirohito eventually read his surrender speech on Japanese radio, and Puyi, 
Japan's puppet emperor, he was asked to abdicate. He did. A bit more on Puyi. With his phony empire crumbling around him, the last Chinese emperor ended up burning a substantial amount of documents that would have possibly implicated him as a Japanese collaborator, and the erstwhile emperor's plan to escape? Well, he wanted to get captured by the Americans, as he figures that they won't kill him. He's very worried that if he gets captured by the Soviets, they'll cut his head off. The Soviets, though, did catch him, but instead of executing him then and there, Puyi was taken prisoner. He later testified at the Tokyo War Crimes Tribunal about his collaboration with the Japanese, about Manchukuo, and about war crimes that he was aware of. The former emperor's testimony took seven days. He testified for longer than any other witness at those trials. After Mao Zedong's forces won the civil war, Manchuria was reintegrated into China itself. The yellow flag of Manchukuo was replaced with the red flag of communist China, and the former emperor, Puyi, spent several years in a re-education camp. He eventually was let out and he wrote his memoirs. In some ways, Manchukuo was an innovation in control and in the exercise of indirect power. After World War II, several Eastern Bloc states would be nominally independent, but in fact controlled and manipulated by the powers in Moscow. Also, Japan, Manchukuo's occupiers, soon found itself occupied by the Americans. During the American occupation of Japan, the U.S. military was, essentially, the Japanese government, and the U.S. radically restructured Japan's constitution, military, and civil society, just as Japan had attempted to reshape and mold Manchuria into a state of its liking, the U.S. shaped and molded post-war Japan into something that it would prefer. Nowadays, everyone knows that Manchukuo was a charade, and when somebody like me visited the Yasukuni Shrine, and they saw that farcical and ahistorical display claiming that Manchukuo was anything other than a Japanese creation, it was absurd. However, during the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union were far more successful with their little Manchukuos, their little puppet states, that would dot the map for most of the back half of the 20th century. When I was putting together this episode, I was aware that a lot of what I talked about today uh, is in the 1987 film The Last Emperor, and I really considered watching it uh, for background on this topic. Uh, I did not end up doing that. I didn't want a work of fiction and that narrative imposing itself on what I was getting from things like academic papers, old newspapers, uh, scholarly articles, etc. Uh, I wanted to formulate my own story and my own narrative out of those sources, and I didn't want a movie uh, providing a template for me. However, now that I'm done with this, uh, I think I might actually give The Last Emperor a watch. And given the amount of sources that I read for this episode, um, maybe I'll poke a bunch of holes in it and for its historical inaccuracies. We'll see. Um, again, Interesting Times, you can find us in all the normal places. We are at interestingtimespodcast.com. Uh, also, I am on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. Like us on Facebook, that's facebook.com slash interestingtimeswithjoestreckert. And we'll see you next week. Bye.